Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True. And I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the new Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely available. We want everyone to have access to transformational tools such as mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion, regardless of financial, social, or physical challenges. The Sounds True Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to providing these transformational tools to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. If you'd like to learn more or feel inspired to become a supporter, please visit soundstruefoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today is a rebroadcast of one of my favorite episodes. I hope you enjoy it. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Brother David Stendel-Rost. Brother David is an international lecturer, author, and leader in the monastic renewal movement, as well as the dialogue between Eastern and Western religions. After 12 years of training in the 1,500-year-old Benedictine monastic tradition, Brother David received permission to practice Zen with Buddhist masters. With Sounds True, Brother David created an audio program called The Grateful Heart, where he describes prayer not as a domatic ritual, but as a way of opening to the blessings that await us in everyday life. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Brother David and I spoke about facing death and the concept of the double realm, a realm in which time and eternity are one. We also talked about gratitude as a doorway to the double realm and Brother David's suggested practice of stop, look, and go as a way to practice gratitude in any moment of life. We talked about how to let go of any sense of entitlement and see the opportunity in every experience, even when, at first, we don't feel grateful. And finally, we talked about what Brother David thinks about the future of religion and spirituality in our world today. Here's my conversation. It's over Skype, and there are a few challenges with the audio, but it is well worth listening to and listening carefully with Brother David Stendel-Rost. Brother David, I feel so happy after many years to have this chance to talk with you. Thank you so much for making the time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Tammy. I'm happy we could arrange it. Now, I'm talking to you from the Sounds True studio in Boulder, Colorado, and you're in Austria, you tell me. What are, what are you doing in Austria? Well, um, in recent years, I have spent more time in a monastery in Austria than in my own monastery in New York State, because I have more work in uh, German, uh, both writing and lecturing, and so my abbot gave me permission to stay here in a monastery that's called Gut Eich uh, in uh, near Salzburg. Let's put it this way. Uh huh. Now, one of the things I'm curious about is being a monk in our contemporary society, and if you see that there's a particular sacred function, if you will, for monks and nuns in the world, and what that sacred function might be? Well, uh, I think there's the monk in each of us. Uh, it, it, whatever profession we follow, uh, we have this deep inner longing uh, to concentrate on the things that are really essential. And monks and nuns are the lucky people who, by circumstances, are given the opportunity to carry out that in their actual living. It it, it demands a price, uh, uh, but uh, 
if you're really called to be a monk, then you find the price way worth. Uh, when you say it demands a price, what's the price you're paying? Well, uh, one thing is, for instance, you can't have a family, uh, not because not having a family is, is something that's not good. It's a very great good, but uh, it, there is, uh, in the life form of a monk, uh, there is something more, uh, that's for those who, are, who choose that life, still more important. Because uh, nice as a family is, it, it is also a constant distraction from the things that we, uh, as monks, devote ourselves to. So tell me more when you say this longing inside for something essential what that is like for you now at this point in your life. Do you still feel a sense of, quote-unquote, longing for something? Oh, I think that's something that is simply part of life and is not uh, something that is ever fulfilled, or rather, when it is fulfilled, the longing grows even stronger. And it has been said that this is the difference between... Uh, the appetites uh, that we have for food and drink and the, ap the spiritual appetites. Uh, when we uh, long for food and drink and get it, uh, the longing subsides. But if we long for spiritual things and get them, the more we get, the more the longing grows. And what I'm talking about is something that every human being experiences. Uh, it's uh, spirituality for me means aliveness. It comes from the Latin word spiritus, which means life or life breath. And so spirituality is our aliveness, our full aliveness on all levels. And particularly the aliveness to that which to that mystery with which we are confronted in life. As human beings, we are confronted with mystery. We are confronted with that which we cannot grasp, we cannot get it into our grip, but we can understand it uh, by letting it grasp us. And that is the longing to find opportunity and uh, to let yourself be gripped and grasped by this great mystery. Uh, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, a great medieval mystic, says uh, uh, concepts give us knowledge. What we can grasp gives us knowledge. What grasps us gives us wisdom. And we all, every human being longs for that wisdom, longs for being touched by that mystery. A good example is music. Uh, we can't grasp music. Nobody can grasp music, but we can understand music. Uh, and how do we understand music? When it grasps us, when it does something to us, then we understand. And that is a pretty accurate image for uh, what it means to be in touch with what I call mystery. Mm. You know, Brother David, I, I love hearing you talk about longing and how that is an appetite, one of the only appetites that increases even when the mystery touches us. And I think that's because a lot of people in the beginning of the spiritual quest are trying, at least I've seen this, they want to get rid of their longing because it's a, something in the heart that aches. And it's like, I want to solve that. I want some book. I can read the book and now that's calmed down and I'm not having that yearning of the heart anymore. And what you're saying is something quite different. Yes. Uh, our longing, our deepest human longing, I think, is for belonging, for belonging to our true self, for belonging to all others. And that doesn't only mean human beings, but all other 
animals, plants belonging to the whole universe belong for that. The long, that longing gives us joy. And longing to that unfathomable mystery uh, that we are confronted with on every side. That's what, what makes us human. That um, there's those deep questions that we have in, in our lives. Why, for instance, the question why? Why is there anything other than nothing? Why ultimately leads us into that fathomless mystery? And the question, what? What is anything? What, ask anything. Nature or man-made, what is it? What is it ultimately? And uh, that also leads us into that deep mystery. And, and the third big question is the dynamic one. How? How shall I do it? How shall I live? How can, how, how can I live? Uh, and that, again, leads us into mystery. We can not solve it by understanding it in conceptual terms. We can only understand it by doing Live and you will understand what life is. Doesn't that ring true to your own experience? It definitely rings true that the answers to all three of those questions are laced with mystery. That part rings true. I think when you got to the idea, okay, so how, how do we approach this mystery? Live. I would want to know from you here in your 90th year, Brother David. And, you know, I have so much respect for you, truly, and gratitude in my heart that we're having this conversation. I would love to know, in terms of how you approach living with these questions, these mysterious questions in your heart, what have you discovered that's really meant the most to you? Well, we've been talking about monastic life. So uh, I've had the great blessing of living monastic life for 60 years now. And uh, what, how do I experience it? What gives, what is it that monastic life gives me and that gives me so much joy? And one of the things, silence. Uh, that is one of the things that uh, many people prize uh, but uh, cannot have because of the path they have chosen. And, uh, if you have a family, uh, you have, uh, you pay the price of not having the silence. Uh, and that silence is the opportunity to let yourself down into mystery, to let yourself be touched by mystery. And that is uh, <laughs> like the joy of music, only a thousand times deeper and greater. Hmm. Now here I mentioned, Brother David, that you're in your 90th year of life. And of course, one of the greatest mysteries we all face at whatever age we are is the mystery of dying, mystery of our own death. And I'm curious how you are contemplating your own death? What comes up for you in the face of death? Well, <clears throat> the key term uh, in this context is double realm. Uh, the poet Rilke uh, used that and coined that term in German, the double realm, the doppelbereich. Uh, and when I think about death, the most important aspect is uh, this double realm in which right now we live. Uh, and double realm means not two realms put together, but one realm that is at the same time one thing and the other. And what I mean in specifically is we live in time, and we live in now. And uh, those are two completely different realities. Uh, time, uh, our body lives in time, and time runs out. And when my time runs out, then 
I die. That's how I define death, when time is up. Uh, does that mean that everything's just over? Well, everything that has to do with time and space is over, but we, in this double realm, we are also aware of another reality, namely of now. Uh, that is not in time. Uh, many people think now is a little point in the present and everything before it uh, is the past and everything that comes after it is the future and the now is just a little stretch of time. But that's a wrong concept and you can make a mental experiment and cut that little stretch of now in half and half is not because it is no more and the other half is not because it is not yet. So, uh, and yeah, then you say, but it's a very, very narrow little strip of time. Well, as long as it is a strip of time, you can cut it in half. It shows you that now, it's one way of approaching the fact that now is not in time. In fact, one can turn this around and say, time is in the now, because when you remember the past, you know you're talking about the past and you know you're remembering the past, but you remember it as now. You can't remember the past any other way as now. And when you imagine the future, you also imagine it as now, and you can't imagine it as future. What is that? It's the now projected into the future. So uh, when the future comes, it also is now. It's not future, it's now. So in the, from this point of view, you can see now contains our time. And when time is up, what remains for me is my now that isn't even affected by dying. I live both in time and in now, or you can call it eternity. If you mean by eternity, not a long, long time, but the very opposite of time, the now. So when my time is up, everything that belongs to time and space is over but it is contained in, as it always was, in the great now. And that now is not affected by it. So what I learned from that and what affects my daily practice is that I practice more and more to be in the now. And be in the present moment, in the now, the moment, T.S. Eliot calls it, the moment in and out of time. See, it's a double round. It's in time and it's out of time. To be in this present moment. And then, when my last moment will come, I will also be in this moment and everything that has to do with time will be over and what remains is my now. So it's a, I'm not talking about life after death, because after death, by my definition, comes nothing. That's when time is out. Time is up. But I'm talking about life beyond death. And to practice and uh, interact with and be aware, particularly be aware, be conscious of that life beyond death. That is the great task, I think, for all of us, but especially if you are 90, like myself, and you know, time is going to be up pretty soon. Now, Brother David, that was really one of the most beautiful and quite original explanation. I had never heard this term, double realm, before unusual explanation of the present moment, if you will, because I agree with you. I think many people, when they think of the present moment, think of just being kind of in touch with what's happening in time. They're not 
necessarily connecting to the timeless or touching eternity, if you will. And so I'm curious for you, was there a breakthrough, if you will, in your life where you were like, oh, that's what eternity feels like or timelessness is like? Oh, I get it. Well, uh, it has a lot to do with my becoming a monk. Uh, I grew up uh, in Nazi Germany. Um, all my teens, um, when I was 12, Hitler came. And uh, so for seven years, we were under Nazi occupation, war, death, left and right. And at that time, I came across that little book, <laughs> it's called The Rule of St. Benedict, uh, in which St. Benedict writes how to set up a monastery. And it's just a tiny little book, but we read anything that wasn't, uh, that the Nazis didn't want to read us, so anything religious we were eager to read. And so that's how I came across that, that Rule of St. Benedict. And in it is a little sentence that was the most important sentence for me in the whole book. And it says, the monk should have death at all times before his eyes. Uh, and I, I was very young. I just thought that was really important. That was really interesting. But I didn't, uh, I didn't understand it really. It just interested me very much. And then I was 19 and the war was over and I was alive. I'd never thought this was a possibility. Not that we had feared death. We, we were just living with the understanding that soon it will be over because all our friends that were a year or two older were drafted and, and a few months later were dead. So we didn't expect to live long. And then I suddenly had a life ahead of me. I couldn't believe it. It was uh, the happiest time of my life. Uh, I was with a girlfriend and music and, um, and dancing. It was just fantastic. And at that time, I remembered again that sentence, uh, to have death at all times before your eyes. And I suddenly, that was this sudden flash, I suddenly became aware of the fact that the reason why we were so happy, we had a very happy childhood and youth, very happy. We wouldn't trade it against anything else, bombs and death and all. But we were so happy because we had to live in the present moment because we had death at all times before our eyes. We couldn't wait for anything afterwards. We were confronted with death, and so, and therefore, I now connected that with the idea. Uh, if I would be a monk, a Benedictine monk, and have death at all times before my eyes, then I would be as alive as we were in the middle of the war. And I didn't like the idea of becoming a monk. I didn't like it at all. In fact, I ran away from it for seven years, actually, before I entered the monastery. Uh, then it wasn't difficult at all. I, saw the monastery and was kind of love at first sight. But that was had to do with my vocation. I wanted to live in the present moment. And monastic life, everything in the monastic life is directed towards help, helping you live in that present moment. And as I said before, that isn't something uh, that is only for monks. Uh, it's really what makes everybody's life happy and and, and satisfying. It's what we are made for. But for monks, it's made easier. It's made so much easier. Uh, now, Brother David, I can imagine somebody listening and hearing you talk about the quality of silence and not having a family and how that's a price to pay, but at the same time, you don't have the same, you know, noisy children running around in your in your house, you know, pulling on 
your apron strings or your jacket all the time, wanting your attention, and feeling like, okay, this is all great for Brother David. He says we all long for this, and there's a monk in all of us. But my life's really different. I have a lot of chaos and responsibility in my life. How am I going to follow and go deep into what Brother David's saying here? Well, uh, anyone who would say that to me, I would uh, recommend to him or her to read uh, the books by Eckhart Tolle. Much, much later in my life, I came across Eckhart Tolle's book, Now, um, and that book, I must have listened to it on tape. I would not be surprised if it was 30 times or more. I was constantly listening to it. I knew it practically by heart. And it didn't tell me anything new. That, But it was such a joy because that was what it's all about. That was my life to live in the now. And that's why I like that book so much. And Eckhart Tolle has the great uh, advantage of talking not only at all, not only for monks, but talking for every human being and giving practical examples uh, also how one can practice that living in the now. And, uh, and, and I would recommend reading, I would recommend reading his books more than my own. <laughs> and, you know, Brother David, I, I know you'll be coming to the conference, Living a Life of Presence, later this year, September 29th to October 2nd in Huntington Beach with Eckhart that launches the Eckhart Tolle Foundation. And it's great to hear, I didn't know that, that you'd listened to the Power of Now audio program so many times. But I want to follow up with this question because I know a lot of people who are exposed to Eckhart's work. They read his books, they watch his videos or listen to his audios. And when they're in his energy field, if you will, when they're listening to him, they feel this sense of timelessness. They tune into it. But then when they're not listening to the audiobook or being with him at a retreat, they're not really changed. They go back to their normal, everyday rush-around life. There's not a transformation that happens. So I'm curious how you could address that. What do you think would help? Well, the key word in what you just now said is timelessness. Uh, and I'm not talking about timelessness. I'm, a talk I'm talking about the double realm. And almost at the same time, when Rilke wrote, coined this word, this term, double realm, T.S. Eliot wrote, the moment in and out of time in his four quartets, his, his line, the moment in and out of time. And, and that is the same as the double realm. And uh, in, the, uh, in, in my life, I discovered uh, that the most practical way for both for much and for other people who come for advice and friends and family and, 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 and other people I know who are not monks, the best way is through grateful living. And, uh, and by grateful living, I mean a, a special, a real practice, which we also uh, have not for a long time, 15, 16 years by now, we have this website with uh, thousands and ten thousands of people coming every day. Um, the, it's called gratefulness.org, um, gratefulness website, and it has other spawned other websites in, in Spanish, we hear agradecidos, in, uh, in, uh, in German, and in Chinese even, and uh, in a few smaller countries, there are websites that are affiliated with it and so forth. And people, there's this wave of interest in, in gratefulness and in grateful living. And the simple practice, <laughs> simple practice is stop, look, go. And that is something that everyone can do uh, 
and, and, and thousands of people practice it, uh, it means that in the course of the day, you train yourself very so often to stop, look, go. Stop uh, because you have to break this automatism um, into which we slide. That means coming into the now. But I'm not talking about sitting now in meditation for half an hour or more. I'm talking about a split second in which you train yourself, for instance, when you put the key in the ignition of your car, before you turn it, between putting it in and turning, you train yourself to put a little moment into it, a split second, and in, that is the stop. And then comes the look, and the look is for the gift within every gift, and that is opportunity. You look, what's this now the opportunity for? Uh, and then comes the goal, you take, you take advantage of that opportunity. And stop, look, and go. Take, take the opportunity. And so I could, for instance, imagine that somebody puts the key into the ignition and before turning it, stops for a moment, is already in habit of looking what is the opportunity for, and immediately says, wow, I have a car. It may not be the model I like, or maybe old, or not the right color. It may not be the start, but eventually it starts, it gets me around. And that raises your gratefulness for a split second in your heart. And that is the goal, the, the joy, giving you this joy. And that is completely different from taking life for, simply for granted. You don't take it for Whatever you take for granted doesn't do anything to you. Whatever you are grateful for gives you joy, gives you this great joy. And so the stop, look, go has become a real uh, method, a real spiritual method, uh, for, for this practice of gratefulness, which is a practice that more and more people adopt and is almost becoming a fad. Now, Brother David, I, I want to talk to you more about gratefulness and the practice of gratefulness, but just for a moment, if you could connect a dot for me that's not 100% clear. How does the practice of gratefulness help me access the double realm? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, because the stop puts you into the moment in and out of time, puts you into the now. And that now is both time and eternity, time and no time, beyond time. Uh, and there's no need to think about it and speculate much about it and get caught in all sorts of questions. Uh, It is enough to practice that and to find, see, it's the double realm. So don't look in it, so to to say, for something second. It's one, one realm. And as you live in the present moment of time, you live in the now, which is beyond time. And that, does that connect to God? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. Now, I have, I have a question, though, about gratefulness, because, you know, I listened to your TED Talk, and in your TED Talk, you talk about how it's not happiness that makes us grateful, it's gratitude that makes us happy. And I thought, okay, I believe that. But what came up for me was, what about those times when I just, it would be false to summon gratitude. I don't feel grateful. I feel upset. I feel disappointed. I feel betrayed. I feel let down, something like that. I don't want to conjure up something that's not real in my experience. In my experiences, I'm disappointed right now. I'm not grateful. What do I do then? Right. Uh, well, uh, I know that from my own experience, and I think anybody who practices gratefulness knows it from one's own experience. 
There are times when it's very difficult to be grateful. For instance, uh, you are tired. That's that's usually a good example. You are t- just tired, uh, so you are not really very much alive, uh, or you might even be inclined to be depressed at certain times. Uh, so. And more important yet, there are many, many things for which one cannot be grateful. You have listed some of them. Betrayal, you said. Uh, that's one of them. Uh, exploitation, uh, violence, sickness. You can think of innumerable things for which you cannot be grateful. But you can be grateful in every moment of life, in every moment, even when you are confronted with these things, something for which you cannot be grateful. Because, and I said that earlier, but uh, just uh, need to repeat it, the gift within every gift is Opportunity. Opportunity is this important thing. Uh, when you, for instance, think of something that's obviously a, a nice gift, uh, a bunch of lovely grapes, seedless grapes. That's something I really love. Sweet, seedless grapes. Um, you're grateful. You know, joy. Joy, you, you eat these grapes, and with every one you put into your mouth, the joy rises. The joy of gratitude rises in you. You don't have to do anything else. Just taste them and, and enjoy. Yes, but you think you are grateful for the grapes. What you are really grateful for is to enjoy the grapes, because those grapes would also be there if they are in the store and you are at home and not and can't go and get them. The, it's not the grapes, it's the opportunity to enjoy. And so with everything, it's always, the in, and most of the time, it's opportunity to enjoy when we are really grateful for something. But there are many things which we cannot enjoy and then when you in practice, you ask yourself, and what's this the opportunity for? And it may be the opportunity to learn something new, which may be quite painful, or the opportunity to grow by this experience, which can also be very painful, growing pain. Uh, Or it may be the opportunity to protest. There are many things in life for which we uh, ought to which are the opportunities to protest against it as it ought not to be so in private life and in public life. And if we do that, if we avail ourselves of that opportunity, which is the way to show yourself grateful for the opportunity, to avail yourself of it, you get in the midst of things for which you cannot be grateful, the joy, the joy of doing the right thing. That, that joy is the gratitude. It's, it's not something that comes afterwards, but it rises, when, when gratitude rises up in our heart, you can just as well say, and joy rises up in my heart. Hmm. That's very helpful. I'm curious though, and this is a personal question, Brother David, did you ever go through a period in your life where it was really hard to see the opportunity in what was happening and you didn't move forward and be grateful and go, but instead you experienced some kind of wallowing, if you will, in pain? Yes, yes. Uh, I'm at number one on the Enneagram and we are the resentful ones. And so resentment uh, rises very easily in my heart. And that, uh, is, and that is, happens often, not just one period in my life, but again and again, I have to struggle against that. Uh, but that's probably one of the reasons why I had to learn to rise to the opportunity because that's the joy of living gratefully. Uh, but it's not one period. Uh, two, 
areas that I can point out. Uh, on the one hand, personally, uh, I go off and on to, to fortunately rather short periods of depression. Well, when I'm depressed, well, poor me, uh, what can I be grateful for? Very uh, near at hand, that thought. But then uh, I learned to ask myself, what is this now the opportunity for? Very unpleasant, but it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity, for instance, to become aware of what other people suffer, who suffer the same thing. There are millions of people with depression. Uh, there is a certain sense of solidarity. I, I wasn't aware of it at all. And if I learn the lesson, I will be available for people who have depressions and will understand them and have compassion. To learn compassion, whatever. I suffer, it's an opportunity to learn compassion. So that would be a personal example. Uh, then there are uh, public examples. Uh, all the things that happen in, in uh, politics, uh, I can get very resentful against them. But then I ask myself, yes, that is an opportunity to stand up and do something. And uh, I think there was a time in, in uh, history of the United States when there was a lot more protest going on. I remember at times even at the first bombing of Iraq, they were still under the first bush, I was standing all alone in the snow with my sign <laughs> in, in the traffic, some, some cars, that was in Ithaca, New York at the time, some cars would wave and honk their horns and other cars would shake their fists. But it gave me great joy. It, it gave me great joy that I was healthy enough and aware enough to stand there and protest. Uh, so we thought, well, that doesn't make much of an impact, uh, especially the, our protest against the Vietnam War. But then uh, uh, Nixon's diary came out uh, years and maybe decades later, and at a time when we were protesting and thinking, well, it doesn't make an impact, uh, one of his aides, no, it wasn't his diary, it was one of his aides, uh, one of his aides wrote that uh, Nixon said, well, I guess we won't be able to use atomic bombs in uh, atomic weapons in Vietnam after all, because there were too many demonstrators on Constitution Avenue last Friday. And none of those demonstrators knew that they had made that much of an impact. Uh, so uh, those would be, would be the two areas dealing with depression and dealing with uh, political injustice. Hmm. Hmm. That's helpful, Brother David. Thank you so much for being willing to be vulnerable and just share about your own process. Sometimes I think when people hear somebody talk about you know, gratitude and gratitude leads to happiness. They think that the person must be grateful all the time. This is someone who's figured it out. <laughs> we usually teach what we most need to learn, don't we? <laughs> mm -hmm. Now, you created a pledge for grateful living that's at the website you mentioned, gratefulness.org. And it's a beautiful pledge. And there are just a couple points I wanted to pull out and have you comment on if that's okay. And the, yeah. the first part of the pledge, you say, in thanksgiving for life, I pledge to overcome the illusion of entitlement. I thought that was very, very important for me to hear. And you know, you go on to say, by reminding myself that everything is a gift. So how do we overcome this illusion of entitlement? <laughs> Well, the sh short answer is through being grateful uh, because 
life gives us what we need, not necessarily what we want, but life, as we look back on life, we see it always gives us what we need. And we can even come to see life knows better. And uh, because we often get gifts which we think are just awful, and they turn out to be valuable gifts. Everybody that looks back on their life can see times of that seemed like catastrophe, and, and they were a completely new beginning and uh, very important. Uh, so uh, life gives us what we need, whether we want it or not. And uh, entitlement means that I know better. I know what I ought to get. And uh, that, that is the difference, that's the basic, basic difference between these two, the difference between trust, trust ultimately in life, and fear. Fear that there isn't enough to go around, fear that I'm um, stepped on, uh, fear that uh, whatever, fear. Fear is the opposite of trust. And Basically, we must make that choice. It's a true choice. We can't choose otherwise. It just won't lead anywhere, but uh, we can choose. Uh, as it says even in uh, the Bible, in the, in the uh, Hebrew Bible, I put before you today life and death. Choose life. As if not everybody would, of course, choose life. Yes, we don't, of course, because we are, we don't, in order to choose life means to trust life. And there is always within us that fear, that fear. And I must clearly distinguish between fear and anxiety. Anxiety is unavoidable, unavoidable in life. But fear is giving into that anxiety. But uh, that is a, that's also a very important point. It goes with that question about entitlement. Uh, when I'm in, when, when I uh, don't trust life, then I think I know better and I fear that life will cheating or something like that. And we learn sooner or later that this is not so. Uh, life gives us what we want. So, again and again, you ask questions that for which the answer is really tried and you will see. Try living gratefully and you will see that that gives you joy and that overcomes that narrow notion of poor little me, I'm stepped upon, I'm not getting enough, and so forth. No, I, I just want, as a, a parenthesis, also say, uh, very often uh, people who, for instance, don't treat their employees fairly, uh, say, oh, you have just this notion of entitlement. In that case, the right attitude is protest, stand on your, on your hind legs. Uh, often something that is just a question of justice is labored entitlement. In that case, that's not what we are talking about. In that case, I say, look at the opportunity and stand up against it. Uh, a, a very important chasing question right now in the United States are the farm workers uh, and, and uh, the undocumented immigrants. They are just entitlement. That's not a question of entitlement. That's not what we were talking about. Do you understand that? Yeah, I think, I think you're making, though, a very important point. And that's good to keep in mind. But I do hear a lot of people there, I'm entitled to 
have my soulmate? Where is this person? I should have this person. How can I be grateful? I've never met the right partner for my life. I'm entitled to have a house that's as nice as my neighbor's house, and I don't, and things like that. I think that's pretty rampant. It is. And it just shows that we don't really live from our healthy self, but we forget that self. And in that moment, the eye shrivels up and becomes the ego. And our whole society and our, our lives are ego ridden. Uh, ego result, uh, all that is bad in the world is a result of the ego. Uh, when I forget that great self to which I belong and which is one self for all, it is one great self for, for all, not only for all humans, but for all um, animals, plants, uh, all living beings, and probably even the non-living ones, uh, the innermost self is one, and we belong to that. And to say, I myself expresses that belonging to that great self in which we all belong together. But when I forget that, uh, I shrivel up into the little ego, and the first thing that happens is fear. Of course, I must fear if, if I'm, I'm that one little cell, that one little ego among millions and billions of people in the world. I must be afraid, uh, afraid of, and that makes me aggressive. Fear makes you aggressive. Fear makes even little animals, if they can't flee, they will attack you. Uh, so fear is the root of aggression. Fear is the root of rivalry. I must use my elbows. I must get the head, says the little eagle. Uh, it's the greed. Oh, there isn't enough for, for, to go around. I must get more and more and more. So fear leads to aggression, to violence, to rivalry, to greed. On the other hand, trusting in life uh, leads to non-violence, leads to love, to belonging, yes, to belonging, leads to, uh, instead of rivalry, cooperation, instead of greed, sharing. That is the world that we all long for. Uh, and even though we long for it, we live from our little ego. And so the way to get out of the ego is again, moment by moment, to live in the now, because in the now we are also aware of being connected with all. Uh, I cannot uh, actually, I've been thinking about that, and I cannot very clearly articulate yes, yet why uh, why these uh, two are practically synonymous, being in the now and being in the self, the great self that the Buddhists call it Buddha nature and the Christians call it the Christ self, Christ lives in me, I, not I live, Christ lives in me, that great uh, communion of all. I have not yet figured out, I'm working on it, why the moment we are in the now, we are also in that great self and vice versa. Uh, but it's a fact. And so if we practice, any practice, they all lead us into the now. Well, any spiritual practice that I have come across does that. But also gratefulness leads us to stop, look, go into that present moment into that now. Hmm. Okay, Brother David, there's just one more area I want to talk to you about before we run out of time here, which is I know that in your life you've been a leader in interfaith dialogue between Zen monks, Christian monks, etc. And here we are at a time in our society where there's so much questioning about the future of religion. Churches are closing down. People are confused. Am I, can I just take a little bit from here, take a little bit from there? What do you see 
on the horizon, if you will, for spiritual practice of the future, religion of the future? Well, I like to quote that predictions are very difficult, particularly when they are concerning the future. <laughs> so I'm really not going to make predictions, but uh, one thing that seems important to me in this context is uh, the fact that all the different religions and religious traditions with which we are familiar um, are uh, expressions of uh, one deep, uh, what I call basic human religiosity or spirituality. Uh, religion is a, is a good word because it means something like retying broken bonds, the bonds that we have to ourselves, the bonds we have to all others, bonds we have to that great mystery, uh, that religion is the retying of these broken bonds. But most people speak about spirituality and that's aliveness and that's just as well. So, Every religious tradition uh, is an expression, a different expression of this basic human spirituality and this basic human religiosity, which means uh, allowing yourself to respond to that great mystery which those who use the term God call God. And I'm not particularly concerned when uh, a tradition that wasn't there uh, before it was created also comes to an end. That's not the important thing. If it helps people, it's fine, it's wonderful. If it doesn't help, it'll come to an end. The religions are not the important thing. The goal of the religions is to make us religious, or make us spiritual, and bring us back to that basic human spirituality and religiosity that uh, belongs to us, that makes us what we are as humans, that, uh, that confrontation with the mystery. And uh, that will always remain as long as humans remain humans, and I do hope that we will create new forms, uh, as you say, pieced together from open traditions, new forms that will help us interact with that mystery and therefore interact with one another in loving ways and, uh, inter and find our own truth in ourselves. That seems to be the important call for the future. Predicting that this will also happen uh, is a little difficult, but I do hope that it will. Okay, Brother David, just one final question here, which is, you know, a long time ago, oh, 20 years ago, Sounds True released a program with you called A Grateful Heart. And part of what you talk about in that program we've talked about here, which is the practice of gratitude. But you also talk about how we can come more into our heart and live more wholeheartedly, if you will, and pray more wholeheartedly. And I wonder if we can end on that note. I can imagine someone listening whose heart is really moved by our conversation and yet feels part of their heart shut down in some way. How can, how can we come into more wholeheartedness? Hmm. It seems to me that being in the present moment is always wholehearted. Being grateful 
is always wholehearted. Imagine somebody who is half-heartedly grateful. That makes no sense. That's a practical contradiction in terms. So if you cultivate grateful living by the simple method of stop, look, go, uh, you're also cultivating wholeheartedness. And that seems to me the connection between the two. And what a joy it is to live wholeheartedly. That is the, the real aliveness of which we are speaking. So uh, I hope that whoever is listening uh, to our conversation and feels, um, I like that, but my heart isn't in it, uh, just look at something for which you are easily grateful. Don't start with the difficult things. Look at something that makes you grateful and immediately you will be wholehearted in your heart. And then you take it hard. And, and then you know where your heart is. And that's a good start. You know, that's where you want to take things. Thank you so much. God bless. Thank you so much, Brother David. And I want to thank all of our listeners. I realize that the Skype quality to Austria had some challenges, but what a tremendous conversation with such a beautiful human being, Brother David Stendelrost. Thank you for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at soundstrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I love getting your feedback, being in connection with you, and learning how we can continue to evolve and improve our program. Working together, I believe, we can create a kinder and wiser world. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world.